Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It's Chief Justice John Roberts' 13th year-end report on the state of the federal judiciary. And it may be the report that gets more attention than any other because it raises issues that have been sweeping the country with the Me Too movement. The report is largely devoted to the federal judiciary's response to this year's natural disasters, but the chief also highlights the depth of the problem of sexual harassment in the workplace across the country, shining a spotlight on a special problem for the judiciary where law clerks work closely and in confidence with powerful judges. Joining me is Deborah Katz, founding partner of Katz, Marshall and Banks. Deborah, Robert said events in the past few weeks have made clear that the judicial branch is not immune from the problem of sexual harassment. He didn't mention prominent judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit by name, but he was undoubtedly referring to him. Tell us what happened with Judge Kaczynski. Sure. Well, on December 8th, the Washington Post ran uh, a bombshell of a report reporting on the fact that a number of former uh, clerks of Judge Kaczynski had accused him of sexual misconduct. And there was a range of behavior that was reported by these former judges that ran the gamut from subjecting them to inappropriate, bizarre, sexualized comments to pornography, uh, and essentially creating an environment where they did not feel uh, able to uh, complain because there was no mechanism to complain, but that they felt completely uh, demeaned by the experience. And the judge responded in a way that was extremely dismissive and said, essentially, if this is the worst I've done in 35 years, I can live with that. That led to the Washington Post on December 15th reporting that nine more women had come forward. And these women had also uh, described bizarre, inappropriate comments, but also said that the judge had subjected at least four of them to touching or kissing, clear sexual harassment. And at that point, uh, it was clear that a floodgate had been opened and the judiciary had to respond. Ultimately, the judge was forced to submit his resignation before an investigation was undertaken. So he announced his retirement on December 18th. Uh, Let's discuss the complexity of the problem with law clerks, because an appeals court judge will use have four clerks, and there is a strict code of confidentiality they work under. There's also the fact that the judge is very influential in their future careers many times. What are the special pressures and conflicts a clerk faces who's harassed? Well, you've you've named a few. Uh, Getting a a federal judicial clerkship is a real plump for any person graduating from law school, and it is a significant stepping stone for advancement in the legal profession. People are very reliant on judges to get recommendations to either advance to higher-level clerkships, and in Kaczynski's case, to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the very top of uh, the profession, or to other positions at firms and elsewhere. Um, and it really is the first significant lawyering, lawyering job that someone has out of law school. So the clerk is completely reliant on the judge for connections and recommendations, and few people want to burn that bridge. The other problem is that, as you've described, uh, several judges have four clerks, 
and you are very isolated in uh, the judges' chambers. You don't discuss your work with other clerks or with other judges. Um, so there really isn't a mechanism to go tell your coworkers, this is what's happening in my chambers. And what the clerks have done is they sent a letter that I think at this point has well over 700 signatures uh, describing needed reforms within the court system to make clear that the, the uh, condition of confidentiality does not apply to keeping uh, judges, uh, I'm sorry, to keeping clerks muzzled when they're being subjected to sexual harassment. So that was a very significant first step uh, that the judiciary did, which is it amended the uh, law clerk handbook to provide uh, uh, clarity that harassment is not one of those conditions that is to be kept confidential. Roberts said he's already asked the director of the administrative office of U.S. courts to assemble a working group to consider whether changes are needed in the judiciary's code of conduct, etc. Is that enough? Is Will that do it? Well, that's an important first step, because, and that was one of the uh, reforms that the clerks who signed on to that letter asked for. Uh, the code provides ethical canons for all judicial employees, including judges, and it's very clear that uh, there is a paucity of direction in this code that makes clear that judicial employees uh, can report these things and sets out a mechanism to handle harassment should it be encountered in the workplace. Uh, unlike uh, members in the private sector or even, or even in federal executive agencies, there's no recourse if you're sexually harassed and you're clerking for a federal judge. Uh, there isn't, Title VII does not uh, cover you in the workplace, uh, and there aren't clear reporting lines like going to the EEOC. So uh, revising the code of conduct for judicial employees is really crucial. Only about 45 seconds here. I just wanted to get your opinion, Deborah, about there's been a lot of reporting about things that happened, uh, sexual inappropriate activity from, let's say, 20 years ago, where the statute of limitations has run. And there was an October 16th article about uh, a account of a woman who said Justice T Clarence Thomas had touched her inappropriately in 1999. Yes. What about this going back so far? Well, people are coming forward with these allegations because they are of important public concern. This is a moment where women are finally being believed about these allegations, and they're not coming forward seeking money. They're not asserting legal claims. They're essentially saying that people who hold the public trust need to be held accountable, and that's what happened in Kaczynski's case. He's paid for this with, you know, the ultimate uh, I've, got to, I've got to stop you there. I'm, we have to, so much to talk about this, but thank you. New York financier Lynn Tilton is starting the new year on a high note with a record of two out of three court wins in 2017. Last Friday, a federal judge threw out the charges against Tilton in a $1 billion civil racketeering suit just three months after the Securities and Exchange Commission cleared her of fraud charges of bilking investors out of more than $200 million. Following the SEC ruling, Tilton told Bloomberg TV that she'd been completely vindicated. 
The documents spoke for themselves. They gave me complete discretion, as the judge said. They gave me control over the funds. And as she said, there were no omissions. Everything was reported. Everything was there for people to see. However, Tilton did not fare as well in a Delaware trial. She's appealing a judge's ruling that she was properly ousted as a director from some portfolio company she claimed to control. My guest is Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School. Bob, tell us about the civil racketeering lawsuit against Tilton and her Patriarch Partners investment firm. Sure. Yeah, so there are basically quite a few moving parts here, but I think we can kind of boil it down to its essence um, by noting what the SEC suit first uh, amounted to, uh, and then understanding the kind of the private suit sort of in relation to that. So essentially what you have here is a case of some failing companies. Ms. Tilton uh, becomes an owner of those companies with a view to turning them around. She also runs, uh, however, a fund uh, which is used to extend funds to the failing firms, which she needs in order to turn them around. Okay, it's a fairly unorthodox arrangement, but there's nothing illegal about uh, illegal about it as such. Right. All right. So uh, ultimately, of course, uh, the whole uh, plan uh, comes a cropper. It doesn't end up working out. So the SEC uh, brings a suit against her, alleging that she's defrauded the investors in the funds that she used to extend financing to the failing companies that she was trying to turn around. Uh, she actually objects to that SEC suit. She thinks that it's unconstitutional. That was, of course, a silly argument on her part, and she lost it. She was rebuffed there. But the SEC, nevertheless, ultimately found in her favor. It said that, okay, look, she didn't defraud those investors because she had informed them uh, all along of precisely how she was going to be operating. Uh, and also, she had um, um, uh, you know, been given a great deal of discretion under those funds organizing documents. Okay, Now, the fund, uh, those who invested in the funds weren't satisfied, of course, with the SEC finding. They sued in their own names. So now we have a, a civil action brought by private parties rather than by a regulator. They sued her uh, on racketeering uh, claims or racketeering charges. The problem with that suit is that that kind of suit had been foreclosed in the mid-1990s um, by Congress, right, in the so-called PSLRA, which was essentially a suit that, I mean, a, a statute that was designed to place limitations on the kinds of civil suits that could be brought uh, against uh, alleged securities fraudsters. So that suit was thrown out uh, ultimately by the court precisely because the PSLRA uh, prohibited it. Um, one last thing maybe worth noting in this connection is that uh, Ms. Chilton might be right and she might not be right when she says that she's been fully vindicated by this most recent decision. Um, the reason that she might not be right is that the, the, uh, the suit was tossed out because it's foreclosed by statute, not on the merits, right? So she could, in theory, still be wrong on the merits, but we'll never have occasion to find that out because... Congress says you can't bring suits like that against people like Ms. Tilton. So I think I need a diagram now to figure out <laughs> yeah, all these different lawsuits. So, <laughs> yeah. so Judge William Pauley's decision that found that these allegations were outside the scope of federal racketeering laws, that was not based on a determination that the allegations were false. That was procedural. Right. Exactly. It okay. was entirely procedural as a matter of essentially whether the law, you know, whether this this kind of suit is permitted. Uh, again, it's a civil suit. This was a private uh, litigation brought as a civil suit, not a regulatory charge. Uh, and essentially, what the court found was that well, that's exactly the kind of suit that Congress decided no longer to allow in the mid 1990s when it passed the SLRA. So, is there any other? 
way that they can go after her, the the uh, you know the investors as far as the racketeering charges? Is there any other kind of suit, or are they dead in the water there? Well, in theory, they could try to go after her on the same theory that the SEC itself had gone after her. But in light of the fact that the SEC itself ultimately found that she had not defrauded her investors because she had, you know, even though it was an unorthodox arrangement, she had informed them of everything. And plus, again, they had entrusted her with a great deal of discretion. In light of the SEC's finding that way, it seems unlikely that any private suit would succeed here. Uh, a private suit that doesn't sound in racketeering uh, might be bringable, but again, that would probably lose on the merits in light of what the SEC itself had found. So, Bob, let's go to lawsuit number three, which she lost. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what the Delaware judge ruled, and she's going to appeal that decision. Yeah, so the Delaware judge uh, ruled, I mean, so, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, you know, she ultimately. Uh, how should I say, the funds that she was managing in order to raise money that would help her finance uh, her attempts to turn around uh, the failing companies that she was trying to turn around, uh, those particular funds ultimately ousted her as their as their manager. Right? Uh, they uh, ousted her essentially on the basis that, well, this was essentially, a, again, the arrangement was so, so unorthodox and that it was such an inherently conflicted sort of arrangement that it basically presented her with such a conflict of interest that it wouldn't do for her any longer to be on, you know, managing those particular funds. Um, and uh, the, they ousted her on that basis, right? So the Delaware court, so, so she sues saying that that's a wrongful termination, so to speak, right? In effect, she's saying that was a wrongful severance of my relation with these particular funds. The Delaware court upheld this, but it didn't uphold this on the, on the, on the basis of a theory to the effect that, well, she really was somehow wronging those funds, just saying that the funds themselves have a good bit of discretion when it comes to determining who they want to be managing them. Uh, and they also have discretion to, you know, say, look, we're uncomfortable with the conflict of interest this places her in. Uh, and so we're going to oust her on that basis. Uh, I think that's going to be a harder one for her to challenge, right? The Delaware court, having upheld the fund's decision, uh, upheld it on, on reasonable grounds, on sensible grounds. It, it, it wasn't clearly wrong or clearly illegal or clearly in breach of contract for the funds to oust Ms. Tilton uh, on the grounds that they did. Uh, and so I think her appeal uh, of that particular decision is not likely to prevail. All right, we have about... Should, maybe it might be a good idea to quit while she's ahead, if I could put it that way. We have about one minute here. Right now, what is her power? What is she in charge of? Is she managing? Is she getting money from different things? Where does she stand? Well, she's got other funds now, of course, right? Uh, and so, I mean, she's still doing the kinds of things she was doing before, which, as far as we know, are legal, right? There's nothing. Um, there's nothing that's kind of uh, per se illegal or per se shady about what she's doing. What she's doing is unorthodox, uh, and it does definitely raise certain con- conflicts of interest. Uh, and it could very well be that the law in the distant past would have just flat out prohibited. Uh, her whole wearing these particular hats in such a way as subjects her to this particular conflict of interest. But the laws that stands now doesn't prevent that. So she's essentially doing the kinds of things that she was doing uh, uh, before, uh, now with another firm. All right, uh, Bob, that was an excellent explanation of a really complicated situation. That's Robert Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.